Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Wait a second, there are still people talking. Lisa? Lisa Halverstadt was talking. Who's talking? Welcome to Voice of San Diego Live Podcast. We're back. Hello, everybody. It's good to see you. So my name is Scott Lewis. I'm the CEO of Voice San Diego. I'm very excited uh, to be back. It's been a few weeks since I've been on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm really upset about how well it's gone without me. Um, I wanted them to struggle and really, really trip over themselves so that they wanted me back. And they're just like, oh, you're back this week? Okay. I went to Philadelphia for the Online News Association. Uh, Online News Association is uh, something I used to go to a lot, um, but I was there because, uh, I don't know if you heard, but there was some trouble at the Union Tribune, and um, uh, there were a lot of great journalists that have been uh, let go there, and it was really troubling to a lot of people, um, and it was, a, it, was, it was a jarring for the entire country to see what's happening, and I was invited to speak about that and to talk to people about uh, what we might be able to do uh, to rebuild and build news better in San Diego. If we were to wipe San Diego's news ecosystem clean and start from scratch, what would it look like? Uh, and I'm trying to have those conversations now. I used to travel a lot more for those things. It was an important place to be with everything going on, right? Like the, the seed of American, the, the, the site of, a, of the birth of American democracy uh, and, and how important it is for us to do and for everybody to do the kind of work that matters for informing and keeping a public engaged in its, in its civic doings, right? Um, there were some really important people uh, in local journalism uh, at our shop and at the Union Tribune uh, that are no longer employed. And um, it's really quick and easy to forget about what they do because there's TikTok, there's TV, there's reality shows, there's sports, your attention span is pretty easy to fill. Not you. You all are... You're locked into the civic affairs, to the overlay zones and the, and the density and the, uh, uh, and, the, and the parking minimums and the, and the, the, the financial documents and the, the debts and everything. Uh, but there are a lot of people who, who struggle to keep up with news 
and whose uh, attention spans are easily filled. And it's not because they're dumb, it's because there's so many really engaging things out there. And every time we lose somebody who's good at keeping somebody's attention, uh, it gets filled really quick uh, by other means. Uh, and I think uh, we're, we're working really hard uh, to fill that. So we got a great show tonight. Uh, I'm excited to talk about a lot of things going on and to bring some people up. We got a lot of cool people here tonight, um, and I'm excited to talk to you all. Uh, did anybody see? Uh, did anybody see this? The, the the guy running for city council in Carlsbad, Ke Kevin Sabellico. He uh, he sent out a text announcing his uh, his campaign. Everybody see this? He sent out the he sent out the text, uh, a big text message blast announcing his campaign, uh, and it's a good it's a good message about his campaign. Uh, and then it, it had a picture. Unfortunately, the picture wasn't of him. It was of uh, Nathan Fletcher. <laughs> and uh, he sent out another one right after that, you know, corrected version. Um, so we're having a debate. Was this uh, an accident? Probably, right? That's easy. Or was it genius? Was it actually genius? Because here I am talking about a guy running for city council in Carlsbad. And I'm, the, I'm so important, you know. But <laughs> here's a guy, we're talking about him because he, he made this vote. Do you think he did that on purpose? No. Let's have a vote. All those who say it was on purpose, raise your hand. All those who say it was, it was make noise so that the people can hear. It was a mistake. All right, it was a mistake. All right. My first co-host tonight, and she's been with me for now uh, a while, and she's had a great time. She is managing editor of Voice San Diego. She's the mother of schnauzers, breaker of stories. She's San Diego's chisme ambassador and champion of the Morning Report. She is Andrea Lopez Villafana. Lopez. Hey, Lewis. Hey. It was right. nice not having you on the show. Was it? Yeah. Why would you say that? I don't know, because I got to be the star. I'm, I'm trying to muster all the confidence I can get <laughs> to, to put on a good show, and you're just saying it was nice. <laughs> I'm not just to kidding. Have. We missed you. Okay. Thank you. They did a great job, though, right? Huh? All right. We have uh, a special guest for the evening. He made the mayor angry by asking some questions about the mayor's homeless camping ban. He, uh, his staff has to, had to put in a system to make sure that he clarified if he was just brain dumping or if he was actually telling them to do something. He's the San Diego City Council member representing District 6. He's Kent Lee. So you really texting staff late at night? You know, there's labor issues involved there. 2 a.m., 3 a.m.? 3 a.m.? It's brain dumping. Brain dumping. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's a, what's a recent brain dump? Like uh, like a street, street light needs to get fixed kind of stuff? Oh, or it could, is it, it, could, it better it, and deeper? It could be anything. I mean, sometimes it's, a, it's an article that's out there, right? It's like covering by the an Voice issue. San Diego? Sometimes maybe Voice in San Diego. You just share a Voice San article. You're like, you guys need to read this. Good local journalism yeah. as, a, as a place, even at 3 a.m., um, no, I mean, there are a lot of things that I think we, we spend a lot of time talking about issues. We think a lot about it. 
And sometimes it comes at different times of the evening, day, et cetera. I think because I've got a three and a five-year-old at home yeah. and I've got to work around their schedules, it means that our hours are all different. So, I mean, for me, a lot of it is about protecting our team's time and energy so that they know when it, you know, it's necessary to respond. But a lot of the times when it's not. Yeah. He sent me a, a note the other day. I, I, I tweeted that um, there's a lot of parents out there. How many are you parents of young kids? Any parents of young kids? Yeah. Some of them don't eat, don't eat, don't eat food. And it's, it's, it's troubling, right? You're like, you need to eat. You need to eat food. Well, I went through that for a while. I was like, eat food. Because you're paranoid they're not eating food. And I, I tweeted, I was like, everybody who's worried about that, don't worry because one day they will be as tall as you and they will eat everything in the house. And it, it happens. My son's now as tall as me and he eats everything in the house. And your kids will eat too, I promise. Better for my sanity, not good for my wallet though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. All right. Well, we have a great show. We're going to talk about the homeless camping ban, the effort to rebuild City Hall, housing. We've got some games to play. Anybody up for a game, huh? With the staff? Um, it's going to be a great show. All right. We just posted the update, right? Yeah. Head to our website after the show. So we just posted a web, uh, an update, a story on the website about the Chula Vista Fast Pitch story. You all followed this? But for those who didn't, quick recap. Should I do that? Yeah. All right. So this, this is the story. Uh, Will, Will Hunsbury. Where's Will? There he is. Let's hear it for Will. All right, this is, this is a really, this hit me. I was in Philadelphia when we were running this through the lawyers and stuff, and I, I very much enjoyed the process of this story. So just some background. At all these venues, at, the, at Petco Park, at, uh, at Snapdragon Stadium, um, all, a lot of the concession stands, Ballpark Eats, the Michelada Stand, a lot of those are run by nonprofits. And the nonprofits um, bring their volunteers to come work the concession stands and then they get to take 10% or so of the revenue so that they can benefit their nonprofit. Kent, you were telling me you did this. I, I, I have actually done this. You yeah. volunteered? When I, when I was a student at UC San Diego, I was part of a nonprofit organization that spent its time volunteering, often at PECO. It was a great way to fundraise. Yeah. I've done it. One of the keys, though, is that it, there be nonprofits that do this work, right? Because that's the whole point. You're letting a nonprofit with its dedicated volunteers go and volunteer and do the work and get and get some change for uh, the actual service they provide, right? Well, Will uncovered, uh, is it two weeks ago now? A week and a half? Yeah, last Monday, that one of the biggest operators at Petco Park, a nonprofit known as Chula Vista Fast Pitch. Now, I'm really passionate about softball and fast pitch softball. I'm part of a league that could, that could do this sort of thing. But Chula Vista Fast Pitch was running 12 stands a night for nine years. And they, it doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist as a nonprofit. And then we found out that they were also operating out of Snapdragon Stadium. And Snapdragon was, went to him and said, do you guys have nonprofit pa paperwork? Because the voice is asking these questions. And they're like, 
No? <laughs> I don't know if that's how it went, but it was something like that. Probably I'd like something. to think that's how it went. Yeah, it was a, let's <laughs> uh, do it. Let's do it. Okay, I'm Snapdragon. Do you have any no. nonprofit paperwork? Uh, define nonprofit paperwork. <laughs> so, no. No. <laughs> okay. So, that's kind of how it went. They were forced to leave Snapdragon. They've been forced now to leave Peco. Is that good? Did you like that? Yeah. They were forced to leave uh, Peco Park. And we have an update today just posted that they were also operating at Sports Arena. But Sports Arena, this was in 2015, the Sports Arena officials were like, do you have, here, let's do it. Do you have nonprofit paperwork? Define nonprofit paperwork. You need to leave. So they, they made them leave in 2015. So they, they were actually like checking it. And then Will asked the company how, they, how that worked. And the company is like, it appears that your information is not incorrect. <laughs> was that it? It's something like that. So we took that as solid confirmation of our information. But I think it's, it's funny and all. But there's a really interesting, weird story underneath this. And that is that these organizations are providing labor, right? So if it's, if it, the reason they're doing it is because the volunteers are so passionate about their nonprofit work that they're going to be, you know, you all would do this for Voice San Diego, right? Rita would. Rita would. <laughs> Let's get a stand. Let's hear it for Rita, our new Uber volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> but you do that because you're passionate about the service. But... If there's no service and there's no nonprofit, what's ex who's exactly providing this labor? I'm guessing they're not doing it for free. We have a lot of questions about who was getting paid, how much they were getting paid, whether it was up to those standards that we expect, uh, who was benefiting, who was looking the other way. There's a lot of really interesting questions. We're only scratching the surface. One thing that Will did a great job of is produce what we call a minimally viable story. When you have a big investigative piece, and you're tackling something that's overwhelming and scary and difficult to get down, you have hostile uh, actors that you're confronting, you do your best to get the minimally viable story up, and that's what he did, and it's unleashed a whole torrent of revelations since then. But let's be clear, this is how stadiums and venues operate across the country. If there's something uh, shady going on here, uh, it could have implications for the whole country. Great job investigating, Will Huntsman. <laughs> Scott, I'm just, I'm just going to point out the, the other loser in the, the story is the fact that there are a lot of nonprofit organizations that are fundraising and especially post-pandemic have struggled. And so for me, the other part is just thinking about how many legitimate organizations have lost out on an opportunity because something like this has just gone under underreported yeah. for a long time. So 12, 12 stands a night are being occupied by this nonprofit, Chula Vista Fast Pitch, Ostensibly, they're benefiting a, a girls' softball program league. I run a, I help run a girls' softball program. That kind of money would be, you know, life changing for a lot of girls that need equipment, that need clinics, that need professional instruction, that need all kinds of places. So um, you're exactly right on that. Yeah, and you got to go to a baseball game. Yeah, which you, everybody here knows. I'm a big sports yeah. girl. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know which team you were for? This <laughs> the brown ones. The brown ones, yeah. There you go. 
Well, it was it was fascinating. I mean, I talked about it. I wrote a, a wrote in my cup of cheese may what that moment. Who was gets like. the cheese may here, everybody? <laughs> yeah, I still get old guys that are like, "What's chasm say? <laughs> What's can you tell me what the chasm buzzam sings is?" <laughs> it's cheese may. Cheese may. Um, it was just fascinating being there with Will. I mean, like I wrote in my newsletter, it's not easy for reporters to have to confront these sources. And the story that Will was writing was sensitive because while these two guys are running this weird fake nonprofit, like they're humans at the end of the day and they're going to lose something and maybe there's implications to what they've done. Um, And but so it was funny because we were standing there and we're looking at the ballpark eight stand the whole time, but like everyone's watching the game (laughs) and we look really weird, just kind of like, Oh, where's the guy? Where's the guy? (laughs) Like, okay. I was like, maybe we should look like we're pretending to, I don't know, we should pretend to look at the menu or something. <laughs> like, we're looking really off right now. <laughs> well, thanks for not getting me a Hassan Kim bobblehead. I didn't even know McKenzie those got things. that. Where's McKenzie? Yeah. McKenzie right. was like, give me that bobblehead. I was like, sure, I don't know. Yeah. Cool. Uh, all right. Let's talk about something a little bit more serious. Well, uh, different. Mr. Lee. Yes. You uh, helped me, I think, see something about the... Um, homeless camping ban that was going forward. So let's dial back. The mayor was, and, and Councilman Stephen Whitburn, were pushing a ban uh, on camping uh, um, on public property, right? And you had a series of questions you were asking about it that I think revealed, you know, for instance, that it, that it was already illegal to, um, to camp on, on public property. Uh, so what was this actually doing? What were we trying to do? And the, the series of questions I thought was fascinating. And it helped, I think, illuminate the, the, the story, however you felt about the ban. It's now been in place for, right? Just over a month. Yeah. What have you learned since then? How do you feel about it? You voted against it. You're going to probably face criticism if you already haven't. What have you learned since then, uh, since it's come in place? This is, this is almost weird because I'm used to asking the questions, not having yes. to, to answer them. Now, I, I, you know, it's, it's been a month. I, I, don't, I think it's no secret that, you know, at the time I opposed it. Um, I think it's still early to tell what the actual impact of it is. Um, I think as a city, the one thing we, we know we can take away from all of this is that as a whole, I think everyone recognizes that there is a problem that we are trying to address as a whole. I think the choices and solutions that we make can look very, very different. Um, I think for me, being able to ask the questions as to what the impact we intend is and what we think the impact will be were very important for me to try to determine what we're actually trying to accomplish. And I, I don't know if we're going to see that right off the bat. Um, I think the data is still certainly unknown. If you look at the last month alone, the data from the Regional Task Force on homelessness um, hasn't shifted a lot, which is that There are still more folks entering homelessness, almost 1,200, I think, in the last month, 1,200, 1,300, than are exiting the system, meaning that it is still not a sustainable system. For me, this has always been about the data, the math. How do we actually work collaboratively to address the challenges that we're facing and and really analyze the solutions that we put on the table? Um, And I, I think there's no way to ignore the fact that as a whole, there's a desire to have something done. Um, I think we owe it to ourselves to ask the question as to whether what, we, what action we take is going to have the effect that we intend. 
and ultimately how that impacts the people that we're trying to address. So one of my takes is that through your questioning helped me see was that by and large the biggest value of the ordinance was the city's ability to put up signs that say you can't camp here. And related to that was the city's ability to go and tell people to move along. It, to me, it's the move along ordinance. Is that fair, do you think? I think it's hard to categorize that way. I, I, in the last month or so, I mean, I've seen signs pop up uh, in neighborhoods. Um, I think we're probably all asking ourselves, you know, from a strategy standpoint, where are we focusing our time and our energy first? I, I think the natural, you know, if you look at the data, the natural assumption that I would make is that if there are more people exiting, entering the system than exiting at any given time, if there are more individuals who are on the streets than we have shelter available, then the natural result is that folks are going to move. Um, I, I'm certain there's a degree of that that is intended. Uh, I think always part of our response to homelessness has been to see how we can move folks. We've seen that happen with major events. We've seen that uh, you know, happen uh, in different areas in San Diego with or without the ordinance. And so I, I think something that we'll be watching closely is really to understand how much of that movement is taking place. Part of what we anticipated at the time was that it would likely cause movement from some of the most impacted areas currently. Um, and, and to be very frank, if you're a resident in East Village and this has been an impact for you, for your daily life for a very long period of time, I feel for that. I, I, I think certainly this will possibly have a positive impact for some of those folks. But I do also wonder what other parts of San Diego will be impacted in ways that we don't anticipate. Have the neighborhoods that you represent seen an impact? We, we're still barely just looking at the data, and I think we have seen that there has been an increased um, amount of attention as a result of the ordinance, whether it's because it's actually moving people around or whether more individuals are actually paying attention to it is, I think, part of what we're going to have to understand. Because as you can imagine, following the encampment ordinance's passage, a lot of folks saw this in the news, and I think there's also a degree of expectation that people have which was, well, with this past, shouldn't we see some kind of resolution in our neighborhood, on our streets? And I think the actual impact that has is going to be very different depending on you know, where we actually place enforcement first, what kind of services are offered, and where you are in a neighborhood. I think that's a good point because the fact that this was so publicized, obviously everybody was covering and everything, we also saw other cities react in a similar way. Like other cities were kind of like, oh, shoot, San Diego is going to kick out their homeless people and move them into our cities. And, you know, our um, former intern, Catherine, uh, had a story about how um, Poway, um, how Poway was worried that like more people would come to their city and they wanted to have an ordinance as well because they were concerned. Yeah. And part of the other argument you might see, the essence of this law was also to communicate to people. I think the mayor and many city leaders have decided that San Diego has become a magnet for people uh, to be homeless here. I, whether that's true or not, we can debate and separate, but I believe it's very true that the mayor has decided that's true, and that part of the point of the ordinance was to communicate to, to the world and to them in particular that they were no longer welcome here if they felt welcome at all. Do you agree with that? So I, I would say that when you look at the data, I think it, it has been fairly clear over time that 
the large majority of folks who are experiencing homelessness have experienced that for the first time here in San Diego. Um, I, I, I think that's indisputable. I think where we might have um, some impact that is a little bit different is looking at us from a regional level, which cities are impacted. And we do want to acknowledge that there is a lot of work that San Diego as a city has been doing to provide services, to provide shelter. I think there's a lot more that we've got to do. We, we want to see that from our partners all across the city. We've been seeing more efforts, uh, whether it's in the South Bay, in the North, et cetera. Um, but there are a lot of challenges to delivering that. And I think as a whole, as a region, we need to recognize that no individual city is going to be able to solve that on their own. Um, we could each pass our own ordinances, we could have our own strategy, but without a regional attempt at the response, it's going to be hard to not simply drive people from one area to another. Um, I, I think the bigger picture to this, when we look at sort of the strategy in terms of our response, is simply realizing that as a region, we have a significant shortage of shelter, we have a significant shortage of housing. And you've reported on this um, early on, which is that housing, at the end of the day, is integral to resolving homelessness. And the fact that we do not have housing solutions at every income level is going to be part of our bond as a region. We're going to uh, talk a little bit more about housing in a second. But first, I need a volunteer. We got a volunteer in the, uh, wait, let me say first. Our Lisa Halverstadt is here and she's uh, the premier uh, reporter on homelessness and has been for some time. Lisa, uh, she, she had an, uh, an update about um, the enforcement so far of the ban and ongoing coverage um, of the behavioral health uh, system in San Diego and all kinds of related issues. So stay tuned for some good reporting on that. But I do need a volunteer who's ready. Levi, you up for it? All right, all right, come on up. Tell us what your name is. My name is Levi Giappoleone with Lived Experience Advisors. All right, uh, I, those of you who are hardcore fans of the podcast know that I did around uh, six months ago or nine months ago, or I don't know what time is anymore. Um, it was December, thank you. Uh, a long interview with Levi about his own story um, of homelessness and how he got through that. Did you? Did anybody listen to that? Did you hear? Yeah, yeah, got a lot of feedback from that. Thank you. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a very moving. I think one of the most important parts of that interview for me was how you described that feeling that a lot of people go through when they're on the streets of being lost, of being uh, helpless. When you see somebody acting out, it might be the only way that they can feel like they have any control over, over the weird life that they've uh, fallen into. All right, well, let's uh, transition to some fun stuff. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, you're playing true or false. So you say it's, if it's true or false. Got it? Everybody clear on the rules? All right. All right, true or false. LAFCO is a comedy club in Mira Mesa with very good chicken wings. True. <laughs> No, it's false. All right. Was that a joke? You knew what LAFCO is, right? No, I didn't. All right. All right. Uh, who can name what LAFCO actually is? No, I'm not going to do McKinsey. Of course she does. You know it, sir? Yeah, it's a water organization. That no, no, no. Get out of here. You got it? You got it? Local 
Area Formation Committee? Uh, close, it's the Local Agency Formation Commission. <laughs> Sorry, come on, cheer for LAFCO, guys. Come. <laughs> Nobody has ever heard of LAFCO until this year when they made the decision that the two water agencies were allowed to separate from the San Diego County Water Authority with, uh, <laughs> uh, with some significant impacts that a lot of water nerds care about. Rita knows. All right, true or false, one interesting thing about the new ordinance to ban camping on public property in the city of San Diego is that it was already illegal to ban or to camp on public property in San Diego. True. Yeah, I just gave that away, I guess. Hi, everybody. Hey, good job. All right, true or false, San Diego Unified School District produced a climate action plan to make it net zero on its carbon emissions. That means it would admit as much carbon as it sequesters. But the plan only works if you do not count all the methane emitted in its bathrooms. True or false? True. It's false. No. <laughs> they don't actually measure the methane emissions in the bathroom. It only works if they don't count all the car trips that schooling generates. There we go. This, you're good. I appreciate this. Thank you. A lot of times my questions are stupid. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a prize. There's a prize. True or false, San Diego has the lowest electricity rates in the nation. False. Was that hard? All right. No, it has the highest, turns out, yeah. All right, true or false, uh, San Diego has some of the highest water rates in the nation in part because of the electricity rates. True. Ooh, hey, look at it. He's on a roll. There we go. All right, true or false? People at the opera and stage workers and others are concerned about the future of the civic theater that's next to City Hall, but City Hall, known as the City Administration Center, can be torn down without touching the civic theater. False. Yeah, it's false. It cannot be torn down because... Uh, all the systems are interconnected. They're like, they share, they share guts. You can't just cut it off or they bleed out. All right, good job, Levi. No, wait, wait, wait. All right, true or false, the Padres have played 11 games that went into extra innings and, uh, in, in a tie game, and they've only won one of them. Is that true or false? False. Yeah, it's false. They haven't won any of them. <laughs> Everybody, let's hear it for Levi, huh? Okay, we want to, before your 10-minute break, we want to thank Original 40 for hosting us. And... And donating a portion of profits of food and drinks to us. <laughs> it actually goes to us. We're a legit nonprofit. We're a nonprofit. Uh, so you have 10 minute break, get your refills, place your orders, uh, and thank you again to Original 40. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. 
Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. I welcome back. Everybody, welcome back. I need another volunteer. I need another volunteer. You got it here? Well, no, you're involved in stuff, right? How about you? There we go. Come over here. All right, everybody. Who here has been to PolitiFest before? I didn't hear enough. Who here's been for PolitiFest? All right, PolitiFest is back October 6th and 7th at uh, USD and a, a satellite at uh, uh, Imperial Beach. Lisa, every time, Lisa, every time. Uh, back, uh, PolitiFest.org, it's all going to be about housing uh, and water and the biggest issue. We're doing it in partnership with CalMatters. Go to PolitiFest.org. And check it out. Everybody's going to PolitiFest this year, right? Great. All right. Uh, we've got another question. What's your name? Kyle. Kyle? Uh, what part of town do you live in? Hillcrest. Hillcrest. All right. So pretty close. Uh, so um, what, do you, uh, what do you care about most in, uh, in San Diego these days? Uh, yeah, I'd say homelessness. Yeah, Homelessness. I think it's by far the thing that people register as the thing they most are worried about. Now, there was a promise uh, to deal with homelessness or to add some more resources for it in a measure called Measure C in 2020. Um, so we've talked for years about how hard it is to pass a special tax, right? If you want to build a stadium or if you want to expand the con <clears throat> convention center, you need to get two-thirds of the voters to support your measure. Now, a few years ago, the Supreme Court ruled uh, that citizens' initiatives if they're signatures and they get put on the ballot by citizens, then those will never require two-thirds. Those just require a majority to pass, regardless of what the Citizens Initiative would have you do, including raise taxes. So a group put together a Citizens Initiative uh, to raise the hotel room tax. Where's Matt? There you are. Hey, there you go. Involved. Um, hotel room tax and use the money to expand the convention center and fund homeless services. It got 65% of the vote. That's a lot but not enough to do two-thirds, right? So recently, a court of appeal uh, ruled that it had passed, but they told a lower court to evaluate it because there's one last concern that may void the initiative. I'm going to read you four potential concerns that may void the initiative. One of them is true. Number one, is this the one that is true or not? The city attorney wrote in the ballot book that voters received that it would require a two-thirds vote to pass. Twice! 
Is that the concern that will sink it? Former Mayor Kevin Faulkner and then Council President Todd Gloria ziplined into the convention center to promote Comic-Con, and the judge at the Court of Appeal cannot reward that type of behavior. Or is it a convention center corporation board member may have been too involved, which would make it not a citizen's initiative because that's a government or, uh, agent? Or was the new measure will be on the ballot next year that could eliminate this new loophole and require all tax measures to receive a two-thirds vote? Which of those is the actual reason? I'm going to go with the first one. No. Anyone know? Yeah, it's this. The Convention Center Corporation board member may have been too involved, which would mean that it wasn't a citizen's initiative, which would be hilarious for people who don't have anything at stake. <laughs> like me. They were act that's the worry, right? So we have a, a an astute audience member who said, weren't they also a citizen? Yes. But if they were acting on behalf of the government and manipulating it too much from the government's point of view, maybe they were acting as the government. And then if it's a government initiative, it needs two-thirds of the vote. I don't think that, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. What do we say? Does he get a prize? Yeah. Thank you for your vote. All right. He is a student. He's joining us fresh from his class where he studies such things as movies. <laughs> He's the author of the Learning Curve newsletter. He's a brilliant mind, brilliant musician, and he's the newest member of our podcast crew, Jacob McQuinney. What did you uh, learn about tonight? Well, well study movies makes me makes it seem like I'm sitting there watching like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless yeah. Mind. No, no, no. What, what I'm doing is studying screenwriting. Oh, okay. It's very so, different. Yeah. So we watch small bits of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind yeah. and talk about the script. Yeah. Very, very different. I hope you so, understand that. So I don't know if you heard on the last episode, his screenwriting class was supposed to come up with a news story that they would build a screen a screen play a uh, screen you're getting there scott uh, screen play uh, off of and one of them used will's story and it was very exciting for jacob to to see the real world engage with voice san diego content <laughs> that's how you know it's like jumped out of the containment zone this <laughs> containment zone you know did you ask the student where they like they read the story or how they came across the story? No, to be curious. honest, I don't know anybody's name in my class, so <laughs> I, I, I felt a little bit ashamed of trying to, of going to each different student and saying, hey, are you Daniel? That was the name, but I still don't know who it is <laughs> in my class. One of the uh, greatest thrills I ever got in college was when I wrote a cover story for the local Alt Weekly, and I could see people reading it, and I would be like, that's me. I did that. And Just making like aggressive eye contact <laughs> with people as they're... As it did you, nothing for my dating life. No, no. As you're like the kick, kicking the, the hacky sack in the quad, just looking at them. Yeah. <laughs> That's a day the monster was born. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you should know. Yeah, you had moments like that. Well, but I'm fabulous. So yeah, yeah that makes sense. <laughs> See, she's she's great. Um, there's a there's a big difference between a fabulous monster and just a monster. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, I want to talk about um, downtown. The mayor is moving fast and swift to redevelop the Civic Center. I thought it was adorable how the San Diego Association of Governments said maybe we should put a transit hub downtown and combine it with this whole redevelopment of the Civic Center. And everybody was like, that's a great idea. And we could do a whole thing with the state property that's nearby. And the mayor was like, that's a really interesting idea. How about we'd never talk about that again? <laughs> but they've gone forward. They asked uh, people in the community to bid on this opportunity to redevelop all of uh, this whole six block area downtown. And they got exactly two <laughs> bids in response. And one of them was not at all responsive to the, to the goal although Catherine and I can talk about the policy implications of what they proposed. But uh, one of them was just responsive to the 101 Ash Street Tower, where they proposed to turn the 101 Ash Street Tower into apartments, which sounds cool. I don't know if anybody's ever seen it. I, I have an office that looks out over this building, and... There is a, like a, a part of the building that comes out over the parking garage, and then the whole, the whole roof of the parking garage is this vast like office you know, dystopian landscape. But on the one corner of it, there's like picnic tables. And I just always picture these sad Sempra employees sitting at the picnic tables, looking out over this like vast parking garage roof. Anyway, maybe that's where the pool goes for the apartments. So you don't like parking garages? They don't speak to Scott Lewis's soul or anything? They need a tree or something. Okay. Needs a tree. Not a palm tree. Not yeah, Definitely not, not a palm tree or a eucalyptus. <laughs> no, not a palm. Is this why you're always sitting in your office like? I stare. I picture those people once a day. Yes. Uh, but... Part of the goal with this was that's supposed to be 400 units at the Ash Street thing. Now, to me, it was really weird that they, they wanted to cobble all these buildings together so that they could do something big for the whole area. And then they just say, like, oh, this one building, though, can just be apartments. But the whole goal of the plan, and a lot of people talked about it, was to build housing. They wanted that, and they even talked about the homelessness crisis and said, one response we can have is this civic center redevelopment and build more apartments to address that. Now, I got to ask you a question as the leader of the city who speaks for the entire city, Kent Lee. Why would the city put so much emphasis on the camping ban and mobilize the entire city government to pass the camping ban as fast as it did? And why not use that same emergency sense that I've been talking about for a while about we need to treat the crisis in homelessness and housing as an emergency. Why not use that to do things that would create immediate shelter, that would create immediate housing solutions, that would maybe change the situation? If we have an empty lot somewhere, why doesn't it have containers in it right now where people can have refuge if we're going to push them off the streets? Why aren't we doing big things fast to get this done? Kentley, respond on behalf of the city. Why not? I, I, mean, I think you've sort of answered the question, right? Because we have 
spent a ton of time, even tonight, right, talking about the encampment ordinance, a ton of energy over the last course of the first half of the year that's become such a significant focus. But that same energy, we should really be focusing on the areas where we know there are actual solutions that we want to see come across the table, delivering more shelter, delivering more housing, and, and seeing that same sense of urgency. And um, I, I think it's regrettable that we haven't spent that same type of energy on, on an issue that we know is just as significant. I think the Civic Center is just one example of many opportunities that we have as a city to think about the types of housing that we need to deliver across the board. Um, I, I think right now, we're not really sure yet what's going to come out of the Civic Center in particular. But we know that there are a ton of opportunities to consider how we deliver housing. Part of that, and something that our office has also been thinking about and, and working on, is adaptive reuse, which is looking at a number of the commercial properties that we have, offices, not just in San Diego. We know that statewide this is a challenge right now, given the conditions of post-pandemic work whether people are actually returning to offices. We have all these empty spaces that we should be finding a way to convert into opportunities for housing. And whether the opportunity with 101 Ash is something that's realistic that we can actually consider, I think is yet to be seen. There are a ton of other opportunities out there in which we could look at delivering SROs, middle-income housing, other types of housing that we may not have currently had available. And it doesn't just take effort from a city perspective, it takes effort working with our partners at the county level, at the state level, to ensure that we actually can chase that as an opportunity. Do you think the mayor and the city leadership are treating the housing crisis with the level of urgency that it de deserves? I think in some areas, yes, but overall, I, I would like to see more. I think when you talk about any survey that's being done within the community at the moment, and you ask people what the number one issue is, I know we talk a lot about homelessness. But I think if we actually connect the dots and we, again, recognize that a significant part of our challenge with homelessness is the reality that we do not have homes to house people in, then we should recognize that housing is the problem that we all need to address. Now, Jacob, I want to talk to you for a sec. So you cover education for us predominantly. You're involved in, in other things that, that come up. But we've talked and joked about these extraordinary electricity prices we pay, the high water rates we pay. Uh, you don't own, own a car, I think, in part because of the high costs of maintaining, storing, fueling the car. So I, technically, I, I do own a car. Oh. But what, where is it? It's, it's been broken for like three years, and, oh. and the DMV sucks. You know, so you own a bulk of metal. I do, I do. Okay, yeah. let's not call it a car then. So <clears throat> I think what I'm getting at is when you add up the cost of all the utilities, the cost of fueling and maintaining a car or getting around without one, um, and then you add to it, I don't think people have properly and fully grasped how expensive housing is right now, especially if you're in a place that you've been in with a fixed rate for a long time. There are a lot of people who know more directly what's happening when you go look for a spot right now and how expensive and scary it is to see the prices. And I think there's a lot of people who would be shocked to really confront just how hard it has gotten. And even in places where they say, well, you just go live in Spring Valley or go move to El Cajon or go far, it's still scary. It's still frightening to confront that. And so you report about a lot of things we talk about, about chronic absenteeism, about schools that are struggling, about students that are struggling, 
But you can't untie the burden of how hard it is to live here from that and the, the, the bare cost and the, the fearsome cost it is to live here. And so I, I guess I just wanted to kind of provoke you to, to riff on that for a second because what are, we, uh, what are some of the ancillary effects of, of that and what do you see? I mean, ultimately, I think that education issues are society issues. You know, kids don't walk into school and become new people. They don't walk into school and all of a sudden come from uh, a, a home where both parents are not working two jobs, where they may not be able to bring them to school, where, um, you know, they may be dealing with a level of poverty that, that, that leaves them hungry when they go to school. And, and so all of these things that we see in society show up in schools in big ways. And this is one of the reasons why pretty much every outside societal thing, whether again, it's, it's poverty or homelessness, um, shows up as correlated super closely with, with academic outcomes. And one of the things that we see um, is that these academic outcomes or these, these sorts of outside uh, factors stack on top of each other, right? Um, so poverty and homelessness make a kid doubly uh, less likely to 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 have good academic outcomes, and, and and so we need to understand that that not only are these these issues making it hard for kids now, but they're making it hard. It, they're making things hard for future San Diegans, right? These are these are the people that are going to grow up in this city and have to figure out how to live here, uh, and it's it's a it's a bleak situation. You know, I, I'm born and raised in San Diego. Uh, I've never lived a- anywhere else in my life. And the number of people that I, that I know who are still here is, is dwindling every single year. A- and I think that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty sad situation. And ultimately, it is because this is a really freaking hard place to live. It's a really hard place to make life work, you know? Scott, I mean, let, let's, let's think beyond that, right? At the moment, if you look at the data, the cost of one bedroom in San Diego has exceeded $2,000 a month. Um, we talk about more than 50% of San Diegans spending more than 30% of their income on a place to live. And I think we, we see numbers like that. We see the data and we think, oh, broad impact, that's really tough on a lot of people. But I think if you were to actually dive down and think about how many of the individuals are, who are most impacted are families, young families, with students, young kids who are in school, who are trying to get by, how much of those individuals and how much of those families are struggling to make do with rent that is quickly outpacing any kind of income that they've got? And you realize that the the dire situation that San Diego faces is not just one where it's becoming unaffordable, but it means that the only people who are left to afford San Diegans aren't the ones who are building the future of it as well. So I think when the Voice of San Diego is covering education and you're, you're talking about the stories of these families, the most important piece here is that these are the folks who I think we're going to be losing. When you talk about Sandag's numbers, about the population being projected to stay flat or even decrease over time, these are the voices that we're losing. They're also the voices that we're not hearing every single day when it comes to issues around housing. And they're not going to be the voices that are most predominant. So let me ask you this. One of my theories is there, there is a, would you say there's a majority on the city council that's relatively pro-housing? 
I think we have a pretty broad spectrum when it comes to perspectives on housing. As a whole, I think there is a belief that we need more housing. There's, I don't think there's a question about that. So it feels like there's very little political benefit in advocating for more housing in the city. And it feels like when you do, when you do take a step, when you do push, when you take a risk, uh, when, you, when you anger neighbors and you push something through, that there's nothing benefiting you for it. There's no, there's no win. There's no, the, the developers will still oppose you if you run for county supervisor. Or things like that will go badly for you. Is that fair? I think the reality in the world of politics is that we're often so quick to think about what's going to be a win. And I think for me very personally, coming from the nonprofit sphere before this, thinking about ways in which we can serve the community, so much of our focus in the last eight, nine months that we've been here now at this point has really been thinking about whose voices are actually being left out. And I get that politically it may not be the most expedient thing often to support housing, but I would argue that the real win is the reality that that is actually what's needed in San Diego moving forward. And the folks who need it, who need that win, are also the voices that are not necessarily being represented. If you actually look at the data every single day within the communities, it's not the folks who are saying, please don't add any more housing that represent a majority of our residents in San Diego. The majority of residents, almost any data that you look out there for, mentions that the cost of housing is one of their top concerns. I mean, every single day I see stories from young families, sometimes single parents with kids who are asking about the opportunity not just to live in the community, but is there an ADU, is there a room that I can rent? That's the scenario that we've, that we've been facing. And so it's challenging. I mean, yeah. I, I could tell you that there are moments where it would probably be a lot more comfortable to say, well, let's take a step back and maybe that's not the push that we wanna make. But I'm a believer that one, housing is the most critical problem that we're facing within the region and that it is exactly what the people of San Diego want to see delivered if we have the political will to actually deliver it. So, you, you know, I'm curious for, for people not entrenched, enmeshed in the sort of yimby-nimby dichotomy housing policy world, how do you explain to a, a family who may be barely making income why it's necessary to have a, a new apartment building with $3,000 one bedrooms go up a block away from them? I mean, what, how, how, how do you help a, a, a voter, a family, uh, someone who's on the edge make sense of that? Uh, I, I think the reality is the data becomes really important to actually explain to folks. And I think most people who are in that scenario where they're facing challenges with housing, all they recognize is the cost of it has continued to gone up. So when we explain to people, very much as Voice has in prior reporting, that housing at any income level that gets taken away makes it more difficult for folks who need that, that housing to actually find it, it naturally drives the cost of that up. I, I don't think anyone naturally in San Diego has a tough time understanding that if we do not have the supply in place, that the cost of something will rise naturally. Well, and the, it's, the rich people will always find a place to live. If, they, if you don't build homes for them, they will take your home. And, and, and more than that, the, the, the displacement that we're seeing is at always going to be at the very bottom of the rung, right? It's people who actually end up becoming homeless. 
It's folks who don't have a way to express that this is the challenge that they're facing. They just end up moving away or finding some alternative. So I think every single day, being able to relay the actual real life stories that folks are facing and that if we don't do something to resolve that in terms of actually delivering on having more supply, that of course there's not gonna be a way for them to stay. They know it. I think anyone who's lived here for the last decade has watched the cost of that housing rise exponentially. And if you tell them that, well, part of the driver for that is because we have not been delivering on enough housing for them to actually consider living in, I don't think anyone is surprised to find that that's the truth. So I don't know if you listened to the show last week. Uh, um, Lopez said something I thought was really interesting. Uh, Jacob um, has been doing a lot of work tracking uh, the uh, cost of living from the perspective of childcare, but also um, the chronic absenteeism that has occurred and that we are seeing in schools uh, since the pandemic. It's tripled across the board. Um, yeah, frightening. Be, be scared. I want to like a ooh, ooh, yeah from the audience. And one of the things we try to do is when we find something like that out, we try to drive it home constantly so that people live with it and try to deal with it in the policy world. But then you said something that was just jarring, which was like, I don't think you'd realized it until that moment that you were actually chronically absent as a student. Go into that a little bit more. What what were you... What was I know, your life that was like? like such a weird revelation in the middle yeah. of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I tend to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I missed a lot of school. I think like one, like both of my parents didn't finish. I don't think they went further than uh, middle school when they lived in Mexico. But I think like one, my parents or my mom, sorry, love you, um, didn't really understand how much harm it caused to miss school. So that was one of the reasons why she would be okay with me missing school. But the biggest reason was because she did, couldn't afford to have someone take care of my little brother. And so I was kind of the, you know, nanny in that case or a uh, child care provider. Um, I wasn't paid. So there's yeah. that. <laughs> Chula Vista fast pitch. Good yeah. Enough, right? Um, <laughs> But you, the childcare crisis. I mean, every everybody who has kids, and we talked about it. Like, there, not only even if you can afford it, the spots right now are so difficult to find. And then if you can't afford it, it's it's a whole another level of of um, worry. But we have seen some improvements. Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on where you're talking about. Places like San Diego Unified have increased the availability of after-school uh, care spots. But, I mean, there's still wait lists numbering in the thousands, and that, that leaves a lot of families left out. And, and this is another thing that, as you know, we were speaking about, pushes families to the edge. It's not an easy thing to... Um, to to try and figure out how to, especially now that school has this crazy ass schedule of, of on Wednesdays, for some reason they stop school at noon and, and you know, it runs from eight to two. I mean th that, how is any sort of working family? No, supposed to noon. Eat? It gets out on Thursdays at noon. It's <laughs> very troubling. It's yes. very, it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, you just, uh, it, schools are not built for two parents to work. Like the schools are still set up that one parent is available to take care of everything at 2 p.m. And that's hard. Yeah, it's I, I mean, I think honestly, our society really isn't built for the level of 
of um, dramatic need that we're seeing. Yeah, prices have skyrocketed in a way that's that's not easy for anybody to live with, and and uh, work has become more necessary than ever. It's 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 real out there. It's tough. So we got some questions. This questions from David J. Does the fact that they put the entire Civic Corps out for bid and didn't get comprehensive responses mean that it's now going to be bid without the inclusive housing requirement, even if they break it up into individual parcels? Yeah, so I, I want to have you respond to this, but just my understanding is now it can go out, the city can now put out a, um, a request for or a notice of avail availability and and the threshold goes down to 15%. If there's housing, then it has to be 15% restricted for low incomes. But you could also just propose a new theater or a new office tower and not do any housing. And they're all they're going to spend the next three months trying to decide what kind of um, description to put into that notice of availability. They're also hiring a firm that will help them decide how they want to build a new city hall because um, one of the blocks is supposed to be set aside for a tower for the office. But can I ask you, Kent, it did feel like they were trying to cobble together all of these properties to do something with some actual vision, that it would. this is a once-in-a-century opportunity to redevelop the heart of America's finest city or a, a big city. It's uh, going to blow. You know, literally, there's never going to be another opportunity to change such a core part of San Diego. And I'm a little surprised that they're willing to just kind of auction each of these parcels off the way that they've started to indicate that they are. Is that your understanding of how they went about this? Is there any potential for a unified vision for this plot? I think, I think it's still a little early. I, to be frank, I think the vision that they're um, should and could be a vision for the entire Civic Corps has always been there. But I think we're also facing a stark reality right now where, and this is on multiple fronts, right? This is why housing is becoming a challenge uh, as well. Financing, the, the cost of building, um, everything has shifted in the last couple of years following the pandemic. And it means that the same equations that we were, we were all working with even just a couple of years ago is not what's on the table at the moment. And so is it still an opportunity that we can re-envision what the core of the Civic Center looks like for the city of San Diego? I think so. Whether it's going to deliver what we hoped for to start off with, I, th I think we've gotten the first answer to that, which is that not that there isn't interest. I think the reality is that there are folks looking at it and thinking to themselves, this isn't going to work, given the math. And, and I think that is a stark reality that we're facing. Do you think there were developers that knew that this wouldn't work and they're going to wait for the, the lower threshold? You know, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think if we've seen in other bidding opportunities in the past, the reality is that if folks can make it work and they want to bid for it, they're going to bid for it because if you sit out on it, you're just going to miss out on the opportunity as a whole. I, nice. think, I, I think the reality we've seen with no one responding to the entire op opportunity as a whole tells us a lot. All right, next. This one's from Connor about the recent smart streetlight and license plate reader vote at city council. 
City Council voted to approve funding for the streetlights, despite the fact that the Privacy Advisory Board recommended that they didn't authorize their use at this time, citing privacy concerns. What is the point of the Privacy Advisory Board if their recommendations are ignored? What does the panel think about the future of the PAB and other community oversight formations? You know, yeah, thanks for that question. We see this a lot, right? In, in city government, the planning board has actually no power, but often its decisions do have influence or can shut things down or, or keep things alive. Uh, we see this all the time about whether these, these why in, in some cases it doesn't impact the politicians that make these decisions and why it does has always been kind of um, interesting to me. Um, Jacob did a story too recently about that balance also between privacy of students in this case and the ability to surveil what they're doing and help them with mental health crisis or, or other things. So that balance of privacy versus the ability for the state to intervene to stop something or to, or to solve a mystery is pretty prominent. How did you go through that process? I, I think that's a balance we're all trying to strike. I, I think if you heard the discussion that we had, especially with all of our colleagues, I think you saw a very common refrain which was that for many of us, I think this discussion became one where we were trying to separate the actual technology itself and the impacts of that with the process that was also in place. Um, I, I will share with you, to be very frank, one of my greatest frustrations both before coming to office and serving is recognizing that there are so many cases in which we create opportunities where we say we're looking for feedback, we're looking for a process that engages the community. And I think we have to ask ourselves sometimes, if every single one of those moments we are actually realistically getting the feedback that we want and and it actually takes we take it into account and i don't know that as a city we realistically can say that that is always the case and that is a significant challenge i think in this particular case a lot of us focus perhaps on the flaws of the process but also on trying to figure out how we could move what we thought was technology that might be reasonable for which you do. You believe that technology should be used to help solve some of these issues and crimes and stuff. I, I think we saw probably a, a fairly almost unanimous perspective that the technology itself was not something that we were expressing concern about. The process in terms of how we were engaging the community, whether we were getting feedback, the actual oversight that we're promising to the public, I think that's a big question, which is are we actually delivering on the oversight that we have promised that we would offer? Got it. Jacob, it's your turn to do the game. You, oh gosh. You saw how I managed it. You need to ask them where they're from. All right, okay. Uh, engage I'll, I'll them a, a little bit. I'll get a brief who's, brief. We got biography. a volunteer for Jacob. Yeah, who wants to who wants to play another true or false game? This time a little more historical. Yeah? Okay. I see you with the hand up. Let's see. Okay, so I, I gotta I gotta keep this over here. I have some answers color coded, so you can't under any circumstance see this sheet. Uh, and I don't want any any chiming in, okay. This is uh, what was your name? Michael. Michael what? Jalkia. Okay, and where are you from? North Park. This is Michael from North Park's Time to Shine. Nobody else come in like a little smart aleck, okay? Okay, so uh, we've had a lot of rain lately, but we are no strangers to drought. In 1915, San Diego hired rainmaker Charles Hatfield to ease drought conditions. In January of 1916, the region received 30 inches in ra of rain in just a month leading to the failure of at least one dam and at least a dozen deaths. Now, do you think this little historical tidbit about San Diego is true, or do you think it is false that San Diego 
hired a honest to God rainmaker in 1915, and he produced honest to God rain. So it's a little before my time. Just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. Uh, it sounds ridiculous. I'm going to go with true. All right. Okay. One for one for Michael. San Diego did indeed hire Charles Hatfield to make rain, and somehow he did it. Um, okay. Next question. In 1928, famed Chicago gangster Al Capone built Agua Caliente, a glamorous getaway with an Olympic-sized pool, Turkish baths, steam caves, guest bungalows, and dozens of hotel rooms with tortoiseshell toilet seats in rural East County. The resort later burned down mysteriously. Sure, true. Sorry, Michael. That one is false. That Agua Caliente was real, but it was in Tijuana. So, technicality. I'm sorry for that one. It's a different country. It's not technicality. <laughs> is it really so much? I mean, what, 15 miles at most? Come on. One region, Scott. I, what, yeah, one region. <laughs> okay. All right. Question three. We're one for one at this point, all right? In 1962, then San Diego Mayor Charles Dale was photographed sunbathing nude at Black's Beach. The photos led to a recall effort against him, which was ultimately unsuccessful. One San Diego Union journalist wrote during the controversy, the naked truth is that Charles Dale does not have what it takes to serve as mayor. <laughs> All right, Michael, what do you think? I think I got up for the wrong true or false. Uh, <laughs> true? I'm sorry, Michael. That one is also false. Sounded pretty realistic, though, right? Did I do a good job on that one? Okay. We just got three more. How are you feeling? Bad. <laughs> You're doing pretty well. You're only one and two. I mean, what? That's like better than the Padres recently. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, we're going to keep it nude here, if that's okay with you. Um, during the 1935 Pacific International Exposition, a nudist colony was created in Balboa Park's Zorro Garden. Visitors could pay a quarter to observe the mostly nude performers in the colony through like a little hole in the fence, I think. All right. What do you think? Nudists in Balboa Park performing sun god rituals? True or false? False? Oh, man. You were on a roll at first. That is true. That is true. Ironically, one of the organizations who protested was San Diego's Braille Institute. Um, okay, that was not a joke. I don't know where you guys are laughing. Okay, uh, here's another one. In 1775, angered by mistreatment, sexual assault, this one is a li little out of your time again, right? Uh, angered by mistreatment, sexual assault, forced labor, and more, the Kumeyaay, uh, the Kumeyaay people attacked and destroyed the Mission San Diego de Alcala and the, uh, and, the San, and the Spanish claimed their first martyrs in California. Exactly 250 years later in 2025, a, sur a surviving band of the Kumeyaay Sequan will deliver to San Diego something residents have wanted for decades, professional soccer at the highest level at Snapdragon Stadium, which sits about a half mile away from the site of the mission. What do you think, Michael? True or false? True. Hey, there we go. We're back with it. We got this. We got this. Okay, uh, last one. Last one. 19th century mystic Francis Callwood and his followers, known as the uh, Lemurian Fellowship, 
believed that the surviving citizens of the lost continent of Lemuria used crystal magic to create networks of caves beneath California's mountains, where they still lived to that day. So in 1870, they detonated hundreds of pounds of dynamite at the foot of Cowles Mountain. Callwood did not find any Lemurians, but he was arrested. His followers moved out of the city and set up a permanent residence in Ramona, where they still operate to this day. All right, last one. Michael, what do you think? Lemurians, dynamite, Cowles Mountain, 1870. Sounds ridiculous. So, so true? I'm sorry, but it's false. The Lemurian Fellowship is located in Ramona, but they didn't do anything as awesome as trying to blow up Cal's Mountain. Um, well, despite your losing record, I think you still get a prize, right? Okay. Perfect. Hey, thank you. Scott, are, 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 these, are these a test on items that you've covered? Because I'm either reading the wrong paper or this is a... Uh, Bad we, test on whether folks we, are reading. Would you we read wrote that about paper? a couple of those, yeah. Randy Dotinga, he's, uh, he's our history man. He's covered a couple of those things. All right. Um, I wanted to just say uh, journalism is valuable. Uh, the story of how a community works, what's going to happen. I always tell the reporters uh, their goal is to try to catch your, your, your attention with a what's going to happen story. What's going to happen to this? What's going to happen to Civic Center? What's going to happen to homelessness or the camping ban, what's going to happen to Chula Vista fast pitch, um, all of these questions. But that takes energy, it takes storytelling, it takes professional journalists, uh, and they more than ever need, uh, uh, need to pay to live here, need to be able to live here, need to be able to uh, afford all the utility rates we write about, all of the housing costs and everything. Uh, your support means a tremendous amount. Uh, as you've seen this summer, it is not uh, easy to fund journalism jobs. And if it were, we'd see a lot more of them. So <clears throat> tomorrow, our campaign, uh, our fall campaign begins uh, for support. So if you can, uh, if you have any access to, uh, to more support, or if you have any sponsorships or grants or whatever you can connect with, please see uh, Jennifer Vu up here. Jennifer? Or you can go to VOSD.org slash support. That's VOSD.org slash support. I want to thank our special guest tonight, uh, Council Member uh, Kent Lee. I'm sure at some point uh, he and I won't like each other, but for now it's all right. Uh, uh, also hear it for Lopez. She's on vacation a couple of days. She has become one of the best newsroom leaders in California, and I'm so proud of her. And Jacob McQuinney, he is a special writer and a special performer on so many things. And I want to also shout out to Nate, who uh, makes this sound good every week. Nate. Uh, and Xavier, thank you for making the sound work today. Original 40, what a great place, great food. And most of all, thank you to everybody here. We really appreciate your support and getting to see you and hear from you about what you appreciate and value. Thank you so much, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, exactly, we'll get